Amen. Praise God. Let's get into Scripture. Turn your Bible to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. Actually, we're going to be camped out in many ways in chapter 33, verse 17, and then in, in, in verse 18. And then from uh, chapter 33, verse 18, we're going to move into chapter 34. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn them to Exodus chapter 33, and we're going to start with verse 18. Exodus 33, verse 18, the word of the Lord reads, Moses said, please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. May the Lord add a blessing to the hearers, readers, doers of his holy and errant and infallible word. Um, we pick up in verse 38, in the middle, or I'm sorry, in verse 18, chapter 33, in the middle of a intercession that Moses is making for the people of Israel. For those of us who have not been um, following uh, this sermon series, of, of those of you who have, may have missed it, whether you're watching online or in the room, you may have missed the last couple of weeks, Moses has been on the top of Mount Sinai in an ongoing relationship with the God of Israel. And his people have been at the base of that mountain, Moses' people and God's people, as Moses reminds God. <laughs> they have been at the base of this mountain awaiting Moses' return. Now, while waiting on Moses, he, he has received, or while waiting on God, rather, Moses has received the law and the instructions from God on how to worship him. And, and, and Israel has decided while they wait on Moses and while they wait on God, to create, create their own God. So Moses is at the top receiving instruction from God. And he's not really waiting, but he's there, present, receiving instruction. But at the base of the mountain, they're waiting on Moses and they're waiting on God. And so God is taking too long in Israel's mind. And so they say, we're going to create our own God. Aaron, come here, up, they say. Make us a God. And Aaron says, okay. He gets gold. He says, hey, give me all your gold. And they take all the gold and they reforge the gold into a golden calf. And the golden calf we talked about a couple of weeks ago is more than likely one of the gods or one of the idols that they once worshipped in Egypt because Egypt has an affinity towards cows to worship. So as Moses is receiving instruction from the living God on how they should worship him, Aaron and Israel are making up their own worship book of order for their cow idol at the bottom of the mountain. And as Moses is returning from his time with God with the tablets that God has literally written in his hands, he notices Israel as he is walking back up to the camp. And they are completely and totally caught up in the rapture of worship of this new cow-gold God that they've created. And Moses blows a gasket. First thing he does is he throws the tablets down, the tablets that God wrote. He breaks the tablets. Then he takes the cow, the golden cow, he sets it on fire. Then he grinds the golden cow up into powder. Not the tablets. I said the tablets a couple of weeks ago. I'm sorry. He grinds the cow up, the golden cow into powder, sprinkles it in the water, 
And then he orders the people to drink the powdery substance that he's created of their idol. And the scripture says, when Moses had saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, meaning that the people were so out of control and so caught up in their partying and in their debauchery and in their rapturous worship that Moses determined that something had to be done because the enemies were literally mocking them and making fun of them in this moment. And Moses determined that something had to be done before God destroyed everyone. And so the first thing that Moses does is he asks, who is on the Lord's side in chapter 33? In other words, who wants to make this right? And the family of Levi, the house of Levi, comes forward and they say, we are on the Lord's side. And so Moses instructs them in judgment to go and destroy everyone else who is not on the Lord's side. 300 people, 3,000 people rather, died that day. And then second, Moses goes back to God and petitions him for mercy for those who have repented because he understands that they have created or, or they, have com- uh, they have committed an unbelievably horrible sin. In fact, it is so bad that even after God sends a plague their way, God tells Moses in verse 1 of chapter 33, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt. To the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. And then he says, I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out all of the nations, and I will give you that land that's flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you. That's how bad it's gotten. The God says, I'm not going anymore. In other words, he promises to give them everything that he once promised to give them except for himself. And some people we talked about, if they heard that God was going to give them security and comfort and provision, they probably would be satisfied with that. Even if he said, I'm not giving you me. They said, well, we ain't worried about you as long as you give us all the other things. But Israel understood that they could not accept that offer. Israel understood. In fact, the scripture says that Israel saw this news as disastrous that you can have the blessings, that you can have the security, that I'll defeat your enemies, but I won't go. They heard that news and they said, that's disastrous news for us. We can't accept that. And so all the people took a posture of repentance. And Moses goes back to God and begins to make intercession on their behalf in his conversation with God in which he is interceding for Israel. And Moses makes three requests. The first request is found in verse 13 of chapter 33. He says, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. God responds back to Moses' first request, and he says, I'll go with you. Notice the words. I'll give you rest. Meaning... Moses, I'll go with you. I'm not messing with Israel anymore. So Moses comes back to God with a second request in verse 15 of chapter 33. And he says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. 
for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight and I and your, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people? Basically, Moses responds back to God and says in so many words, Lord, I don't need you to just go with me. I need you to go with me, but I need you to go with us. We need you. Moses and Israel both now realize what we are often too quick to forget, and it is this, that we can have everything, but if we do not have God with us, we still ultimately have nothing. Having heard Moses' petition again for the people, God responds back to Moses and says, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. In other words, God says, okay, I will do it. I will go with you, and I will go with Israel. I will go with all of you. And this leads to Moses' third request, and that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Verse 18, please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. That's an unbelievable request, by the way. Especially when we consider everything that's going on around it. I mean, the first thing we need to consider is that Moses has already got his request, two of his requests answered. Right? God has said, I'm not going. Now he's saying, I'm going. God said, I'm just going with you. Now he's saying, I'm going with you and I'm going with Israel. You would think Moses was like, okay, I'm not going to test it, <laughs> right? This is good. Okay, God, this is good enough. You're going with us. All right, we're good. But no, Moses actually says, Lord, I want more. Moses also, when you, when you consider this request, it's amazing because, because Moses has also had several experiences with God already. Before this latest request for God to show his glory, Moses was first called out, if you recall, by God from a burning bush that was burning, but it wasn't destroyed. God spoke to Moses and called Moses to come and do his bidding. Moses was present as, as God used him to warn Pharaoh, and then Moses was present as God delivered ten plagues in a demonstration of his superior power over Pharaoh and all the Egyptian gods. Moses was present at the parting of the Red Sea. Moses was present each day as the Lord led them by cloud or led them in a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Moses was there. Moses was present as the Lord spoke from Mount Sinai, giving him his commandments and his ordinances. Moses was present as the Lord descended down in the form of a cloud into the tent of meeting. And yet, after seeing all of that, Moses is now requesting that God would show him his glory. Despite all that he's seen and all that he's heard, Moses continues to want more of God. How many of you are content with just routine church? How many of you are content with just simply going through the motions of Christianity? Can I shoot straight with you this morning? One of the significant reasons why us church folk get, get, can sometimes get in a rut in our faith 
is because we are simply content with knowing a little about God versus actually knowing God. We are content with gathering facts about God versus establishing a bona fide fellowship with God. J.I. Packer, the the, the great uh, Anglican preacher who passed actually last July, July 2020, had many great thoughts about knowing God. He wrote a book, in fact, called Knowing God, and it sold, it has sold up to this point nearly two million copies. J.R. Packer had something to say about the difference between knowing about God and knowing God. He says this, quote, a little knowledge about God or a little knowledge of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about God. He goes on and he says, one can know a great deal about God without much knowledge of God. He continues and says, I am sure that many of us have never really grasped this. We find ourselves, we find in ourselves a deep interest in theology, which of course is uh, most fascinating. It's a most fascinating and intriguing subject. Then he continues and he says that we read books of theological apologetics and exposition and we dip into Christian history and we study the Christian creed and we learn to find our way around in the scriptures and others appreciate our interest in these things and we find ourselves being asked to give our opinion in public on this or that Christian question We find ourselves leading small groups or study groups. We find ourselves giving papers and writing articles and accepting responsibility for acting as teachers and and arbiters of orthodoxy. And our friends tell us how much they value our contribution. And this spurs us to further exploration of God's truth. All very fine, he continues, and then he says this, yet interest in theology and knowledge about God and the capacity to think clearly and talk well on Christian themes is not at all the same thing as knowing God. We may know as much about God as Calvin knew, John Calvin, Yet we may hardly know God at all. Do you hear that? As I woke up this morning and I was thinking about Father's Day, I obviously thought about my own father, and I was overwhelmed with gratitude and overwhelmed with joy that my father taught me the importance of this, the importance of knowing God and not just simply knowing about God. My father would never have been confused for some big-name theologian. He was certainly well-read, but he wasn't necessarily what some would call a Bible scholar. He was a shepherd, not a professor. But while E.J. Crawford would not have been considered by Bible scholars around the world to be the one who knew the most about God, I would put E.J. Crawford up against anybody in terms of one who knew God. I remember many a nights as a kid waking up and, and getting out of my bed to use the restroom as most kids do. And hearing my father in the front room praying for his family, praying for his church, praying for God to show him his glory. 
He spoke to God as, as one who speaks with a friend. And I remember getting out of my bed at night and, and slipping into the bathroom and overhearing him talking with God. He was not content with simply knowing facts about God. He wanted to actually know God. He was not content with anything less than knowing God through his life and all the way up to his death. You know, it's often said that we have not because we ask not. And that can sometimes be true of our relationship with God. We sometimes lack deeper fellowship with God because we simply are not seeking after it. We're too busy. We're too occupied. We're too engrossed in everything that life would would choose to throw at us and that this world would choose to throw at us. We're spending all of our time wrapped up in social media, wrapped up in streaming movies, wrapped up in games, wrapped up in sports, wrapped up in activities that we have practically no time at all to sit still and be with God and ask God to make himself known in us and in the people around us. David Mathis, the executive editor of DesiringGod.org and a pastor in Minneapolis, has this to say regarding God's glory. He says this, God loves to answer the prayer, show me your glory. When your soul hungers, when your tank feels empty, when you're running on fumes, when you open your Bible in the morning and you ask for God's help, a great go-to request is this simple, honest, humble plea, Father, show me your glory. Saints of God, how often are you praying this prayer in your own life? But not only praying this prayer for yourself, but for other people around you. Let me quote Mathis again. He says, the Apostle Paul prayed for Christians that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. So that they might know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So instead of starting with your wife's convenience, what if you prayed, show her your glory, God? Along with your neighbor's help, what if you pray, God, show him your glory? Even before your children's safety, he says, what if you pray, Father, show them your glory? This is a prayer that should become common for us as Christians. Lord, continue to reveal yourself to me and to those around me. Continue to make yourself known. Father, show us. Your glory. Not simply because it is a good idea, but because it is a necessity. It's a necessary thing. We need for God to show us his glory. We need the glory of God revealed to us. Glory is one of the keys to our ongoing transformation and sanctification and growth and maturation in God. In order to be more like Christ, we need to behold God's glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says this, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Beholding 
the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the image of the Lord, moving from one degree of glory to another degree of glory. I suspect the reason so many of us can be regular attendees of worship services and Bible studies and other Christian gatherings while remaining cold towards those in need and hateful towards one another and cold towards God is because we are going, but we are beholding so little of the glory of God. When we see more of God, when we know more or when we know God more and not just simply know more about God, we are transformed, Paul says. Packer talks about knowing God, as I mentioned, but he observed four ways in which we know we are growing in our knowledge of God and not just simply our knowledge about God. He says if we are growing to know God, then we will have great energy for God. We will be excited about doing the things that God has called us to do and serving others. Why? Not because we simply want to serve others, but because we are growing in our knowledge of God. And it drives us toward love of others. He says that those who know God have great thoughts about God. In other words, when we come to know God, we see him more clearly. We see him clearly as the sustainer of all things, as the one who holds all power in his hands, as the one who shapes our destiny with his words, as the one who is without rival or equal, as the one, one who is preparing a place of eternal peace and rest for us. That comes as we know God more. Those who know God, J.I. Packer also says, show great boldness for God. You see, when we know God, we testify about God with less and less regard about what others may think of us or do to us because, we come to, because as we come to know God, we come to realize that there is no one worth fearing if he is for us. And then Packer says that, that those who know God have great contentment in God. See, he says that because we are satisfied, when we are satisfied in God, as we, as we come to know him, even if we don't have much outside of God, as we come to know him, we come to realize that he is all we need. You see, Moses wasn't simply content in knowing something of God, or about God, rather, he wasn't even content with being blessed by God. Moses says, no, I want to know God. So show me your glory. And God makes himself known. Picking up in verse 19, it says this. Or rather, before I get ahead of myself, let's, let's start by answering this question. What exactly is God's glory? What is God's glory? Theologian Herman Bavink describes the glory of God as the infinite, indescribable perfection and beauty of all the other attributes. The infinite, indescribable perfection and beauty of all the other attributes. In other words, what Moses was seeking was to see the full manifestation of God's 
attributes. Not just his beauty, but his beauty infinitely and indescribably manifested. Not just his power, but his power infinitely and indescribably on display. Glory literally means weightiness. And so Moses is asking God to show him his weightiness. Again, this is an amazing request for a number of reasons, but, but uh, one reason in particular is because of the nature of the one who Moses is asking. Moses has already seen God show up. He's already seen God do tremendous things, terrifying things in the eyes of many. Remember, we read through when God shows up on the top of the mountain in, in thunder and lightning, and he leaves, the people at, 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 he leaves the people of Israel terrified. They say, Moses, if that God up there has a message for us, we want you to deliver it. We don't want to talk to that God. That God is terrified. And so, and so Moses has seen that. He has witnessed all of that. And here we find Moses saying, show me more. And how does God respond? Picking up in verse 19, he said, I will make all goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The first thing that stands out for me is that who God fully is is simply too much for any person to handle. It's too much. He says, you can see my face. You cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. It's too much. God tells Moses that, if, that, that you will die if you see me in my fullness. God is other as the great theologians say. He's different, as the young folks say. Looking at God is like staring into the sun, feet away from the sun. You will be incinerated and consumed if you get too close, except there is one significant difference between God and the sun. God created the sun. So to protect Moses, he says, I am going to put you into the cleft of the mountain, a crack in the mountain that will shield you from me. He also says, I'm going to put my hand over you to protect you and I'll show you my back. His point here is not that he is going to show Moses a literal human back. He is going to show Moses a magnitude of his glory that he can actually contain and receive without being destroyed. Chapter 34, verse 3, describes this moment 
or describes God setting up this moment. He, he tells Moses, no one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. And so Moses cut two, cuts two ta- or so Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. God says, "Don't let anybody else come up with you. Don't let any flocks or herds graze up this mountain. What you're about to see is going to be spectacular, and it's going to kill anybody that comes close." The second thing that stands out for me is how God reveals himself in this moment. When God passes by, Moses notices what, notice what happens here. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, verse 5, chapter 34, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. His glory, God's glory, is most defined in this text, notice, by what he says versus how he looks. We hear little description of how this scene appears. But when God shows up and his glory shows up, all we hear is God preaching to Moses. And telling Moses who he is. Showing Moses who he is by what he says. One theologian describes it this way. He says, what is strange is that the Bible says almost nothing about God's appearance. Moses wanted to see God, but rather than telling us what he saw, the Bible tells us what he heard. Even Moses had to live by faith and not by sight. He had asked to see the glory and God showed it to him or at least a glimpse of it, but what God mainly did was preach a sermon on his divine attributes. God proclaimed his name to Moses, the theologian continues. Then he explained the meaning of his name by listing his perfections. He told Moses about his compassion and his grace, his patience and his love, his faithfulness and his forgiveness. This is what God wanted Moses to see, the goodness of his divine nature, end quote. Saints of God, God's glory is captured in his goodness towards us. His unbelievable holiness that would consume us if we saw it all, but his relentless compassion that protects us. And then reveals himself to us through his words. His mercy, his grace, his slowness to anger when we fail him over and over and over again. This is what it means to see his glory. His faithfulness to us despite our lack of faithfulness towards him. His steadfast love towards us despite our wavering love towards him. His unwavering uncompromising righteousness that must be satisfied, and yet 
his unending mercy. This is what he shows Moses, and this is what he is showing us. But he is showing us this in a different way, and this leads me to my closing. I want to turn your attention to one more person as we talk about glory. One more person who basically asks the same question, to see God's glory. And that person is one of Jesus' disciples, Thomas. In John chapter 14, verse 6, beginning at verse 6 all the way through verse 8, we hear this. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Listen. I'm sorry, I said Thomas. Philip, excuse me. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough. Show us the Father, and it is enough. You know what that sounds like? Philip is saying, Lord, show us your glory. Father, God, show us your glory. This sounds a lot like Moses. This sounds, this sounds noble. This sounds admirable. And yet it is dead wrong. It's dead wrong for this reason. He is asking to see God. He is asking to see the glory of God. And yet he's staring at it. He's looking at it. He's asking to see God's glory but what he doesn't understand is that this is God's glory. Christ is God's glory. John chapter 1 verse 14 says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul says, For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In other words, all of the glory of God is wrapped in Jesus. Remember, there was another one who was looking for something. That was Thomas, right? That's the one I mentioned earlier. When Jesus resurrected, and the disciples came back and told Thomas, Thomas, man, something has happened. Thomas said, listen, unless I see him with my own eyes, touch his nail-scarred hands, touch his side that absorbed the, the, the blow of a sword. I don't care what y'all say. And then the Lord entered the room. And the Lord says, see these nail-scarred hands. Touch them, Thomas. See this, see this wounded side. Touch it, Thomas. And Thomas responded with what? My Lord, my God. Thomas saw what Philip could not see when he saw the resurrected Christ. And that was this, that he was looking at the glory of God. 
You see, saints of God, when we see Christ in his mercy and in his grace, we are looking at the glory of God. When we see Christ in his love, his steadfast love, we are looking at the glory of God. When we see Christ in his unceasing faithfulness towards us, in his unwavering righteousness, and yet in his unending and unyielding mercy towards us, we are looking at the glory of God. Some of you are in search of meaning, in search of purpose, in search of hope, in search of satisfaction. And in many ways, you are seeking the same thing that Moses was seeking that day, a glimpse of something that is beyond you. Well, brother and sister, I'm here to tell you today that it is here and it is found in Christ. He is the full manifestation of the glory of God. And so how can we behold God's glory and be transformed? By turning our attention towards Jesus. By turning to him in faith and in repentance if you have yet to turn to him. And embracing him as Lord and Savior of your life. But if you have embraced him, by turning to him yet again every single day with knees and face to the floor saying, Lord, show me more of you. Seeking his face in scripture, seeking his glory by unpacking his person and dwelling on it, not just in the good times, saints, but in the despairing moments, going back to this God and saying yet again, show me your glory, meaning show me yourself. Let me see you clearly through the good, through the bad. Let me see you clearly through the peaks and valleys. Let me see you clearly through the highs and the lows. Let me behold you in order that I might be transformed. Saints, this is the prayer that we all can pray. This is the prayer that we need to pray. Let's pray. God, we love you.